Welcome everyone to the 69th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, it's summer. We're back from Vancouver. We met some very interesting people. Um, what a time, right? Absolutely. Uh, when we came back, we all got a little sick. Temperature's good. Markets are going sideways. You're getting some things are starting to shake up again. Media started to talk about how you got central bankers and bureaucrats are starting to lie and they're getting caught lying about the inflation narrative. So that's starting to kind of build up. Um, so you, you kind of build up, you're seeing the volatility starting to kind of build up a little bit again. Yeah. And I think, you know, for the, the, the team transitory camp, that, that, that team has kind of faded to the side right now. <laughs> that's it's um, gone. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, inflation hedges. We've been talking a lot about commodities. Um, we're going to continue this discussion. I think it's really important. Um, you know, while the crypto crowd has a place in society, uh, there cannot be crypto technology without specific metals. And I think we know that as a result of that. But um, we, we're going to get right into it because I, I'm super excited to have this gentleman here. Um, you know, we're going to talk about silver today. It's very, very interesting stuff. But uh, without further ado, uh, this gentleman is the editor of the silver-focused investment newsletter called the Silver Stock Investor. You can visit them at www.silverstockinvestor.com. Uh, he's written about investing in silver for more than 20 years and has been using his extensive industry network to uncover outstanding investment opportunities. Um, he's a precious metals expert and has frequently contributed to financial websites such as Kitco, uh, Streetwise, BNN, uh, Bloomberg as well. Uh, I mean, he's a frequent presenter and moderator at in various investment conferences, including the Metals Forum, uh, which was just held in Vancouver uh, about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he's also the author of what I'm really looking forward to reading this book called The Great Silver Bull. Uh, welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Peter Kraut. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome, Peter. So Peter, first off, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, to begin the podcast, we always like to get a sense of history of our guests. So how you got into the industry, what led you to this point in time, you know, give us a little bit of your story. All right. So uh, 2001, I completed an MBA in finance uh, right here at McGill. And um, after that, started working in the uh, mutual funds industry and um, eventually got uh, interested in gold and silver and started looking at ways that uh, clients could invest in gold and silver. And one of the, one of the few and, and very interesting funds that exist, existed and still exists today is the Millennium Bullion Fund. And um, I started to go to the compliance people uh, where I was dealing for mutual funds and asking them, uh, you know, why don't we make this available on the platform and offer it to clients? And it was, oh no, no, this is this is much too concentrated. It's much too much too risky. And I kept thinking, this is ridiculous. You know, people can easily manage for risk by uh, position sizing, right? Keeping your exposure to a specific asset small enough if you feel that it's too risky or too volatile. So that kind of, I guess, started eating away at me. And uh, over time, I, I got uh, disenfranchised with uh, how, how that whole system was working and had an opportunity actually to start uh, doing research and writing for a group out of uh, the US, um, a larger group called Agora, uh, of which you have Stansbury, Money Map, and uh, several others are part of this, this larger group. 
and started uh, actually doing some work with them. Uh, my first two projects were with uh, someone that uh, you and your guests might know uh, by the name Rick Rule. Mm -hmm. I um, did uh, two, um, I guess you'd call them white papers. They were in on the resource side. One was a green book. I forget what the other, the topic of the other one was. And so I had the chance to work with somebody like that right off the bat, uh, which was great for me. And uh, from there, I actually started with uh, one of their subgroups uh, doing a, uh, a resource newsletter and was working with them for 10 years. That went up until uh, 2019. From there, I started doing, they went through restructuring. I started doing some uh, freelance work for mining companies, writing articles. And then in 2020, connected with Gwen uh, Preston of Resource Maven and uh, wanted to start a newsletter. Basically, um, we chatted a little bit about, um, you know, what we had in common. And I was just, you know, trying to do some, some background research in terms of how I should or could get set up. And uh, she said, you know, why don't you send me some of your some of your work samples and, um, you know, we'll see if there might even be some some something we can do together. And we connected right away and saw that uh, we both saw amazing potential for silver, given what had happened at that point. We can talk about that later, but what had happened in the sort of early to mid part of 2020 in silver and um, said, you know, this is a really underserved market. Um, we, we don't know anyone serving the, um, the newsletter side of things in silver the way we could and would. And so within a question of a few months, launched Silver Stock Investor. That was January of uh, 2021. And uh, it's taken off. We've had a tremendous response. And, um, and then just a few months later, I guess I was um, being sarcastic. I was bored. Not quite with launching a new newsletter, but I said, here's an opportunity. Uh, why let uh, a pandemic go to waste? And I said, I'm going to be stuck at home for, you know, God knows how long now. And um, let me write a book, something I've always wanted to do. A good friend had been prodding me to do this and um, uh, said, you know what? If it's not now, it may be never. And uh, here we are. It's been a month and uh, a tremendous response to that as well. So I'm, I'm very happy and uh, very fortunate with how things have, have played out over the last couple of years. I think it's also pretty cool because um, during COVID, that was kind of the time where it was the best time to start anything. It could have been a business. Nick and I started a podcast. Hey, you know, I share I share the same thing with you. I wrote a book during COVID because I was I, I needed to do something. So yeah, I feel I, that. I think that, I think that's really like it, 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 you got to keep, you got to keep the mind going. Like that's the most important thing. And I know that as, as we get older, that becomes even, you know, top priority. Um, you mentioned something though, with going back to like Rick rule, when you were starting off the resource space there, um, tell us a little, like, what, what were the key takeaways there? Like what, what did you take from that experience that you were able to apply today? Uh, and maybe some of your subscribers are looking at it and saying, oh, wow, like I didn't know that, but Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Peter. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the takeaways are that you you really need to kind of always keep the big picture in mind. Um, there's going to be volatility. There's going to be uh, ebbs and flows during a bull market. And uh, you, you need to have that in mind. And you need to pick investments accordingly. And you need to be willing to stay the course. 
uh, it's not going to be a, uh, you know, a, a single straight line up from bottom left to top right, <laughs> you know, uh, on a, on a chart, it's going to have waves and, um, you have to sit through some of those, uh, downturns. Um, but if you understand where you are in a, in a bull market, uh, it'll make it a lot easier to, uh, to sustain those, uh, those holdings. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway is, you, if you can identify a bull market early and you really have conviction that this is the beginning of something really big, um, then it's a question of, uh, you know, taking a position and sitting with it. And there are ways to mitigate risk. And that's, I, we can talk about again that later as well in the book, but um, I address that. And with silver, especially that's uh, particularly volatile. Um, there are plenty of ways that you can mitigate risk. And so you really shouldn't let volatility scare you away from um, a really high potential um, bull market, really. Uh, there's just ways to deal with it and, uh, and, and, lessen, and lessen your risk. Okay, so let's take that and let's go into the actual book itself. Just want to make sure everybody sees it. <clears throat> so first thing I want to ask you about this, specifically, it was how did you get to meet Ross uh, Beattie? And uh, like, how was it having him? you know, part like any of them, because I saw there was E.B. Tucker. I saw there was a bunch of incredible people that, you know, provided their input and their feedback in the development of this book. And I'm curious to know how that went, like, you know, the conversation you must have had, the people you got to meet because of it. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a great aspect of it, for sure. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, Ross Beattie. That's kind of funny how that happened, because uh, I actually had somebody else lined up, somebody that's equally as big in terms of names, but we'll leave it at that. And uh, it just didn't work out at the very last second or there were two weeks from, from uh, launch date and uh, it just didn't work out. This person was simply too busy, couldn't deliver. And so um, we were in a, um, in a, in a um, I guess a troubleshoot kind of meeting with Gwen and uh I said, look, you know, this just happened. And she said, okay, well, let's just think, you know, who, who else could we perhaps get to do this for you? So she um, has a good connection with uh, Ross Beattie, one of his top uh, geologists. So she fired off an email to him. I remember this distinctly. It was a Tuesday afternoon, right around this time, 5, 5.30. And um, she fired off an email to him. He wrote, he connected with Ross and so by 8 p.m., Ross had replied and said, I'll give a kick at this. Uh, and by the next morning, it was entirely written and appears in the book exactly word for word the way he wrote it. Nothing changed. It was just tremendous. I just felt like he captured everything, <laughs> you know, that that um, a forward really should for this book. And that was it. I mean, just truly amazing response. And very quick, very efficient, and tremendous for a guy who's run, running multiple public companies and probably has, you know, this is the last thing he'd probably expect, you know, would, would fall on his desk and, uh, and needed, but, and yet his, his response was, was tremendous and um, yeah, tr totally appreciated. You see, I think that's what kind of creates, I think that's what allows legends to remain legends is by engaging and interacting and you know, adding more value to the ecosystem so the next generation can learn. Because if exactly. if it wasn't work for this type of stuff, you know, people like myself and Dan, 
and the younger ones, we wouldn't. Ha- it would be much harder to know who they are and the work they would have added to this to this kind of ecosystem and investment class. Exactly, I agree. Um, so I've I've gotten some some really good uh, response and and support from different people. Frank Holmes of uh, U.S. Global Investors. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned E.B. Tucker, who mm-hmm. now is with Metalla Royalty. Yeah. Uh, several royalty companies, in fact, used to be a, a very um, prolific writer with Stansberry. Um, and you have uh, Ronnie Stoferla, who's uh, a managing partner at um, uh, Incrementum. Yeah, and Goldie Trust, correct? And Goldie Trust, which I all your readers should at least look mm-hmm. at the abridged version, which they put out every year. This is a free report on gold. I cannot, you know, um, uh, support that enough. I myself consulted very regularly throughout the year. It just came out uh, May, I think it was May 24th, just very recently, the the most recent uh, one came out. Uh, This is a must read for anybody who's interested in gold and silver. In fact, it should be a must read for anyone, frankly, today that cares about their finances, because um, even if you just look at, as I say, the the abridged version, there's so much um, information in there that gives you a great perspective on on what is happening in the economy and what the outlook is. Um, it, it's just it's um, as we would say in French, an incontournable. You really have to read this. It's it's uh, and as I say, you know, it may be a bit much for some people. So stick to the if you want the abridged version. Look at the charts, but uh, type in uh, in your search bar in gold we trust. Uh, you'll find your way to that uh, report and it's absolutely really is a must read. So, yeah. So, so he, um, he was willing to be very supportive, uh, gave me a great quote that's on the back cover. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've just been very fortunate with, uh, I've got David Morgan who, mm-hmm. who uh, I've known actually for a little over a year when I did uh, my first uh, metals investor forum going back to uh, early 2021, he actually reached out to me. That was another funny story would have been, uh, so this was done virtually. This was in February of last year. It was my first experience with the Metals Investor Forum. It was a silver focused forum. And so David was one of the presenters. And um, I mean, I've looked up to him for years. And I'm gonna say within maybe a few weeks after that uh, event, uh, I get a phone call. It was late afternoon, five, six o'clock. And I'm looking at my phone and I don't recognize the phone number. So I'm thinking, who is this? I don't know anyone. Who's who cold in- calling you right now? <laughs> right. Who, I know no one that lives in Spokane, Washington, right? Yeah. Or from that area. And so I'm not taking this call. So it rings four times, five times. And I'm there. Oh, what the heck? I'll just, I'll just pick up. And it's David Morgan. And so like, I almost fell off my chair. I, I like, he's calling me, <laughs> you know, and it was after having done the, uh, have, I guess he had heard, you know, some of my presentation at that same uh, metals investor forum and reached out like a true gentleman and uh, helped me out at the beginning as well to, um, um, you know, provide some momentum with the, the newsletter. And so we, we speak regularly and uh, he provided a, a really um, impressive quote that I have in one of the, the start of one of the chapters Um in the book. And so, yeah, we can continue to stay connected. And uh, I'm just, I'm just very lucky and and fortunate to be uh, connected to all, you know, to this incredible uh, group of people. Yeah. David Morgan, we, we, we had him on about, a, I think two years ago at this point, Nick, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, yeah. It's uh, what, we're two and a half years into this now, yeah. two years. So, so, so about he, a halfway through about. So, so he's got a very interesting way of looking at the world that I think many macro 
uh, investors, you know, like to look at the world, right? Um, and there's a reason, and I don't want to brag, there's a reason why right now we're doing a little bit better than the average investor, simply because we saw the bigger picture and you touch base on it perfectly. So um, I want to just ask you real quickly, like what made you realize to have that mindset? Because it's very easy to follow the, the herd when everyone's buying tech stocks, everyone's doing this stuff. But like, what was that one thing that kind of just clicked in your head and you're just like, no, no, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff happening and this is actually what is going to happen. So, so how far back do you mean, I guess? Uh, so so whatever s- way you can find context to that question, I okay. guess you can say. So, <laughs> because you guys are saying it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contrarian perspective, which even Rick right. Cool talks about too. Yep. So it's that, it's how do, you, how do you step back, take the time to observe the market forces right. and see, okay, something's wrong. Okay. And if I know something's wrong, I have to start thinking differently in order to ensure sure. I mitigate whatever risk is coming yeah. my way. Agreed. So I'm going to have to say for me, it probably uh, goes back to around 2003 to 2004. I started reading some uh, research by Doug Casey, who's yeah. you know a, a fixture in this in this um, in this area. And uh, it just, all of it resonated with me. It was a lot about uh, libertarian stuff. It was about, you know, um, real money, gold and silver. Um, It was about his experience. It was about, uh, you know, really, really, this guy's just a great thinker, you know, just amazing um, mindset and ability to, to see ahead, to understand context and to use the past in terms of, you know, looking for uh, a, a similar kind of setup and to be able to, uh, to predict, um, you know, with, with some, some really, uh, with a really great track record, uh, what is coming, what is down the pipeline and why. And uh, I, I guess part of it too, for me, is that um, in some ways I'm uh, patient. Uh, I'm going to say in some ways, perhaps to a fault, uh, overly patient with some things, um, but uh, I think at the same time confident in my conclusions because I feel like if and that was actually I did an interview of Rick Rule going back about a year and a half before launching uh, the Silverstock uh, Investor Newsletter, and that was one of my first questions to him, which was, um, you know, we do we need to keep checking our premises? Do we need to keep asking ourselves uh, over and over, almost on a daily basis, where do we stand? Am I right? Are my conclusions right? Has something changed? Am I missing something? Part of the, you know, getting the, I think the right answer to that is to keep looking and reading things that are contrary to what your conclusions are, because that's the challenge. Those are the challenges to, to what you have decided you know, is the right or the likely outcome. And does do those um, do does that work? Do those uh, articles do those does that do those books do those things change your mind? And sometimes they will. If if they do, perhaps that's a good thing. If they don't, either way, it's probably good. If they don't change your mind, that means that you feel that your convictions are strong enough that despite you know some some really perhaps strong challenges that you've you you have the right conclusions so i think you know these are some of the ways to to approach um, making decisions and investment decisions are more important today than ever 
I think that we're at the end of a 40-year bull market in both stocks and bonds. And I think we're at the end of you know, the, the 60-40 uh, um, oh. stock bond portfolio is dead. So we really need to look for alternatives. And that's kind of what led me to silver is that, I mean, yes, I've been following and writing and reading and re researching and investing in silver for a long time. But that inflection point really came in 2020 when I saw how it acted um, when the pandemic hit. And I said, um, you know, this is something, this is, there's really something big happening here. It's the acceleration phase in silver that's really starting to kick in. And so this, this really needs to be talked about a whole lot more. And um, I mean, it's just, it's incredible, the potential. I mean, Rick has said that, you know, his, 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 some of his big, the biggest gains of his career, he attributes to silver investments. When we look at silver, it's perfect in terms of the mindset we're talking about right now, because it's obviously, especially building up into what's going on. And the fact that it's very much a, a lagger relative to other things, but with the, when due time, it demonstrates its purpose. And when we look back at silver and gold and the whole concept of monetary metals and real money and sound money, we go back thousands of years and silver, as Aristotle has mentioned it, as I'm pretty sure you mentioned a couple of times, silver is a beautiful metal, it's <laughs> the most reflective metal. You know, it has very much the same components that gold does. So having written this and obviously done a lot of research, my question to you is what are some or the most standout moment in history in terms of a, a story relative to silver or how it was used in history or something that really stood out to you? Because I'm sure there was some fascinating way silver was used throughout history. So, I mean, I, I guess uh, at least one um, is going to be how about, I'm going to say it's about, uh, I think it was about 800 BC. Um, the Greeks were the first ones to make uh, silver coins. And um, they, it, it eventually, silver became the first true international currency. And over time, I think it's uh, David Morgan, whose research, you know, um, brought this out, is that silver, if I, and I hope I have this right, silver is, has been the most used um, money in history. I mean, gold, of course, is important as money, has been important as money, but in terms of Utility, actually. transactions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It has been silver. I mean, the fact that silver is more affordable per ounce makes sense. Uh, you know, if you think that, you know, silver obviously is considerably cheaper than gold um, for the same quantity of it, then for people to have used silver in day-to-day -day transactions makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, silver has been part of uh, every major financial empire uh, going back probably three, 4,000 years, and has been part of our money all of that time until about 60 years ago. So that's something I think, you know, is interesting and important for listeners to think about how it is that today, only in the last 60 years, when you look over the last several thousand years, that silver has not been part of our money. What's, what's different now? <laughs> what's changed right what what are we missing why why was it so important for so long and why is it no longer part of our money and and what does that say going forward what does that say in terms of potential and 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 its potential in terms of having a role or not um you know in, in any kind of future money 
One of the things too, that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out as well is um, there's a tremendous, there's more utility in silver than there is in gold. Um, gold's more primarily in jewelry. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, the, you know, the, the uh, Indian or the, 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 mainly the Indian society, at least like that mm -hmm. part of the world, the, the Asian there, they love gold. So there's more utility there than there is in Western society. But when you look at Western society and like modern technologies, I mean, like, you know, we're trying to talk about this green economy, right? This whole green new movement that everyone's like trying to tout uh, that unfortunately is a utopia without a plan. Right. And they, they, there's, they seem to forget that there's a lot of metals that are required to get this done, right? You're never going to abolish oil fully, at least in our lifetime, I don't think, but with silver, it's created this dynamic of like, it needs to be part of solar. It needs to be part of wind turbines. It needs to be even part of, I don't know, even some part of nuclear reactors just to keep things going. Even our phones, right? Everything is, there's, there's silver in there as well. So when you have conversations with that younger generation uh, who are, you know, we are conscious about the environment. What, what do you tell them about like, hey, like you should take a look at this metal here. Like this is probably the most important thing. And wh wh what are some of the pushbacks that you get from those people? So, I mean, one of the most important things that I'll tell them and uh, we can talk about now is that let's look at, let's look at, so you, you touched on silver as you, as you utility, it's utility, right? So half of silver go, or more than half of silver, it's actually 54% of silver is used in industry every year. Only 10% or less than 10%, I think it's 8% of gold actually is used in industry. So silver is like five times as, as important when it comes to industrial applications than gold is. The single biggest application for silver in industry is solar panels. 11% of all silver consumed every year goes to the solar panel industry. Um, and so, in fact, at the uh, recent uh, conference, I was talking about that and I was, you know, did research in advance and looked at what the projections are. And the International Energy Agency expects that by 2030, which is just eight years away, that the output of the solar industry, the, the, the electricity generated by the solar industry is supposed to be eight and a half times, nearly nine times as much as it is today. Those are the projections. So the math is simple. If solar uses 11% of all the silver supply every year, and you multiply that by nine times, that's 99 times. It's, 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 99% or it's for sure over 90% of the silver that's available every year. So where, where, where will all the other applications get their silver from? It's impossible that the solar, that solar will be able to soak up all that silver because there are too many other uses. It goes into electronics, it goes into medicine. I mean, it's endless. So the only way you can, I guess, you know, markets, still work to some extent. Uh, the price has to go up. That's the answer. The price absolutely has to go up. There's some recent work by uh, a colleague of mine who actually presented at the same conference, Chen Lin, uh, very, very smart uh, analyst. And so he has great connections in China. And uh, his presentation was also very interesting. And he talked about what the outlook is for different kinds of solar technologies. So the current solar technology uses about 80 milligrams. 
Um, the next technologies um, use about twice as much, more than twice as much. And then the third next most popular, I guess you, or what's down the pipeline in terms of uh, solar technologies use about four times as much solar. So you gain in efficiencies. So yes, you will get a lot more output from these newer technologies in solar, but you're also going to consume a lot more silver to get that output. So the forecasts of silver consumption are probably way too low. That's, that's the bottom line, is that not only, if, even if we did not improve the technology, if we stayed with current technology at the current silver usage per solar panel, we would, we, there's sil solar will consume all the silver in the next sort of eight to nine years. And then if you add on top of that, the amount of silver used per solar panel, because we're gonna want the, the, the more efficient panels. I mean, it's just, it comes off the charts. There's just no way. We really are at, a, at, a, at an inflection point in silver. It, it, it's impossible. It's, it's, and we haven't even factored in all the other uses that are also growing. We haven't even factored in investment demand that becomes explosive. And we can mm -hmm. certainly talk about that as well in this, in this um, you know, conversation. There's a, there's a lot to say. And uh, these are all things that I touch, touch on in the book. And I think, you know, adds a lot of color and dimension to, to really what's going on in silver. And is it, is it true also that you have the same kind of conflict we're seeing like in the copper ecosystem where you can't find major silver mines anymore or new ones? And the ones that, that you can't find, the grades are not of the same quality they used to be neither. That's exactly right. And so um, the, the silver is really very particular, um, silver mining industry. Only... 25% of all the silver mined comes from what we call primary silver mines, mines that produce mostly silver. 75% of the silver that comes out of the ground every year comes from mines that produce other things as primary metals, mines that are mainly gold, copper, lead, and zinc mines. And those mines produce, as a byproduct, produce silver. So silver 75% of, of mined silver depends on the production of all these four other metals. So it depends on the demand for those metals, and it depends in part on the price of those metals, and it depends on the finding of those metals to be able to keep producing them. So what this does to silver is, is actually quite impressive. If you think about it, that makes silver inelastic the silver price is um, inelastic. The silver supply is inelastic to um, the silver price. And then um, if the silver price goes up, so imagine you're a silver miner. You see the price go up and you say, hmm, it takes a lot of extra money to try and you know, expand my mine. It takes a lot of environmental assessments. Uh, there's a lot of risk involved, permitting. It goes on and on. And so you know, what they need is to see the higher silver price for a sustained period of time. They need to see silver at a, at a very attractive price, maybe 25, maybe $30 for as much as a couple of years before they'll say, hmm, okay, so this thing is, is sticking. Now I'm going to start, you know, trying to expand my mind, trying to find more silver and so on. So in the meantime, what they might do is say, oh, this silver price, this higher silver price is really interesting. 
not only is the silver price higher and I'm making more profit, but what I can do is I can start mining my lower grade ores and make the same profit I made before. So they may actually churn out less silver and make the same profit because the silver that they're producing and selling, they're selling at a higher price than they were previously. So their output might actually go down while their profits stay the same. So that might help, a higher price might help silver supply actually go down somewhat. It's really crazy when you think mm -hmm. about the dynamics of it, but that's actually what takes place in some cases. What I, I've also noticed too, I mean, you know, the, the biggest challenge with mining companies, and I think we hear this time and time again, is like, you know, hand me a check and just drill. Because that's just what the business is, right? You're, you're hoping that an exploration or a junior company strikes, you know, silver, gets good grade, gets good drilling results and holes and stuff like that, right? Now, the producers, they've been good at it for quite some time. But like you said, there's only so much supply that's out there right now. So I think this is like the, this is the question or the answer I think everybody wants to hear. And I'm just curious to hear what your take is on this. Why is silver right now trading at the price that it is? And I believe it's at 20, 24 It's about 22 USD yeah. right now. It, it right. keeps fluttering between, you know, 20 up to 25 and then it hits that hard resistance of 25 and it just comes back down. Like, why does that keep happening? What's your take on it right now? I mean, you know, uh, honestly, I, I don't have a magic answer. Uh, I'll be honest. Um, there is There are all kinds of forces that play all the time. Um, you know, some people will raise the issue of manipulation. Um, I'm willing to say that I believe there is manipulation. I believe it's near-term manipulation in terms mm. of the price. That could certainly affect silver. Uh, but if you look at a longer period, if you look at, you know, what what secular bull markets are, which is, say, 10 to as much as even 20 years, I don't think that you can suppress silver prices that long. There's too much organized to be able to, uh, it takes too much organization by too many parties to be able to put that kind of sustained pressure on it. Um, you know, sometimes people just look at alternatives and uh, they don't, uh, they're not attracted to something. They, they don't understand it. They think it's, um, they think it's, uh, you know, maybe not sexy. Uh, they look at all kinds of alternatives. Uh, but silver is uh, notorious for that. It goes through long periods of being really quiet and then it suddenly explodes. You know, we saw that in, uh, I'm going to say late 2010, early 2011, when it went from I think it was about $18 all the way to $49 in the span of about eight or nine months. That was just wild. Um, and then in 2020, it was about $16, $17 or so up until the early part of 2020. Then the pandemic Gosh. hit. Yeah. It dropped to $12. Mm -hmm. And then within a span of five months, almost touched $30. So it gained 100. It, it basically produced 150% while gold did 40% in that same time frame, So it, it outperformed gold almost four to one. Um, we'll call it four to one roughly, which is really impressive. And so that's certainly a sign of what silver can and tends to do. And when it does that, 
um, if you look back historically, I've looked at enough of these instances when you have either, you know, silver is either in a secular bull market or a, a medium term uh, bull market. Uh, when it starts to outperform gold, then you really need to start paying attention. It's likely both metals will start to do well, but silver will just keep outpacing gold um, from that point forward. The way I see it as being a like I'm 29 years old and the fact that I've only really gotten into this space, I'd say about two years is like I see this as an opportunity. I get the lag and I think the market is very, very much more uh, short term driven right now, micro rather than macro. But when the market eventually realizes that things are falling apart and everything, the narrative is a lie and you, the, 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 the whole mirage created by these experts in the central banking system starts to fall apart because you start to see little trickles and evidence of people starting to realize something is not right anymore. There's something, they got, they got something wrong. And then when the run happens, there's a big run. And the way I see it is, this just gives me more time to keep buying ounces and, and kilos of silver. And that eventually when that torque hits silver, it's going to fly and it will go because we're young. So it's like, if I'm going to buy something whole from a psychological standpoint, I would rather buy a full Troy ounce of silver than gold for most young people because they can't afford a full ounce. So you have that psychological effect. Absolutely. That's definitely something that uh, people can can read about in the book because I talk about FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And that's a huge driver. Sentiment is a huge driver in the silver market. But here's a little anecdote. So, um, you know, I had uh, uh, a a graphic design company uh, do the cover for me. And so I actually brought a couple of samples to them uh, on Friday. It was the first time they got to see the actual book printed and, and, and uh, you know, be able to hold a physical copy. And so um, the young guy who did the work for me um, said, you know, he said, it's interesting. I, I, your timing is really good. He says, you know, people are really starting to look for alternatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought about it and I'm there. Yeah. On the one hand, I'm thinking, okay, well, silver's been, you know, not exciting lately, but given, if I think about the response to the book, he's right. He's put his finger on it because the response has been really good. Um, That's one aspect. Another point, and this is something that people can read again about uh, a bit more in the book is that I talk about what happened in uh, late, uh, or sorry, in early 2021. This was exciting for me, especially that it was um, not even a month into uh, launching the newsletter. <laughs> I, I so, know where you're going with this, but go ahead. I'll let, I'll let you say it. You're the you're the star here. Go ahead. All right. So so the letter launched on January 1st of 2021, and by January 28th, we were deep into this whole uh, Wall Street silver. Um, <laughs> The short event. squeeze. Yeah, the short exactly. squeeze. With Jim Lewis and Wall Street Silver. Yeah. Yep. You got it. And so to, so to just give a little color to the whole thing, um, this was on the heels of uh, the uh, GameStop and AMC, AMC yeah. squeezes, right? And so someone on, someone's, well, these guys, I guess, uh, started the subreddit for, um, for Wall Street Silver, of Wall Street Silver, subreddit to Wall Street Bets. And the response was tremendous. Uh, there was a call to basically um, to basically buy a ton of uh, SLV uh, to squeeze the shorts in silver and push the silver price up. So, I mean, I was watching this whole thing play out in real time. This is the end of just the, like the, the newsletter had not even been out for 30 days when this happened. And 
I'm watching as silver goes from $25 to $29 in a span of like three days. Uh, again, these are numbers I remember distinctly. A sil I think it was the SIL uh, ETF, which is yeah. uh, the larger sort of silver miners. The TSX one. Right. So the average silver stock was up about 40%. In, in, <laughs> like we're talking across the board, 40% in three or four days, trading days. Uh, the volume, the, the trading volume on most silver stocks was six to seven times normal. So, I mean, the response was incredible. And as you guys probably know, um, demand for physical silver went through the roof. And this is all stuff that I wrote about and researched for the book. I talk about that. And there's some really great insights because as I did the research, I found out some things I didn't realize. And so um, some feedback on what happened with the bullion dealers was that, first of all, that weekend, a bunch of them had to shut down. They were completely overwhelmed. Some of them have been in the business for 30, 40, 50 years. They've never seen anything like that. They had to shut down just because they were completely swamped out of inventory. There was nothing they could do. Like their computers crashed, their phone systems crashed. Um, they, you know, uh, premiums went through the roof. They went from what was already high, because frankly, from uh, the time of the pandemic, premiums went from what well, they were already actually pretty high, but they went from probably around 25, 30% to about 40, 50% and stayed there. And when this thing hit, they went to, in some cases, 75%. I mean, you were paying close to double, you know, what you were getting in silver content just because people wanted the stuff so badly, so quickly. Lead times went from two to three days to about two to three weeks, in some cases longer. And the really, really interesting part, for me at least, is that this did not come from big players that were trying to soak up a bunch of silver. It's retail. The feedback, the feedback from... The dealers was that these were all small orders. This was almost overwhelmingly retail investors that were calling up and wanted to buy a few ounces of silver, 10 ounces, you know, maybe a hundred ounce bar, but many of them was a handful of, of silver ounces. That's all they wanted. So what we know is that it, it was the retail investor, the little guy was, said, I, I want a piece of this. They, they suddenly became attracted to this whole space and I think that that's what um, is the big takeaway, is that this event really introduced silver investing to a whole new generation. And if you look at what's happened with premiums on silver, physical silver, ever since then, where they've sustained high, really high, I'm going to say double, at least double what normal <clears throat> premiums are, that tells me that the demand is really still there. There's no question about it. And so um, it's true that you know silver has sort of, stagnated uh, at $22. But you know, it's funny, some people will say, when's, when's silver going to run? And I was actually on a call with, with Rick Rule, did an interview a couple months back, and he was saying that people ask him the same thing with uranium. <laughs> and I said, Rick, when they ask you what, you know, when silver, uh, when is uranium going to run? This was February. Tell them it ran last year. What are you <laughs> waiting for? <laughs> it ran already. Now that it ran, you're asking me when it's going to run. You have to buy it when it, when nobody's interested. That's the time to buy it. Back to the contrarian asking. perspective you were talking about exactly. before. Exactly. You got it. That's how you make money. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because 
honestly, I kind of, I can validate that from my side of things where I have more people that are intrigued, especially since I talk a lot, me and down, we, we, we have a lot of these conversations with people now we're kind of known for this type of subject. And that's all I talk about. And so people are asking me about alternative asset classes. How can I mitigate these risks? And then it's like, well, there's options. There's other types of tangible wealth. Out. There's not just a house. There's not just farmland. There is things that have been preserved for thousands of years. And when you put it in context, like, okay, I kind of get it, the volatility, the chaos. I got to kind of hide myself from that. I want to preserve myself. I need to find some sort of stable ground in the midst of chaos that I can make sure that I feel comfortable. Even if it fluctuates a bit, at least I know I feel safe. And people really are intrigued. I've been giving out places for people to buy and how to start thinking about buying gold and silver. And the demand is there. And especially with silver, which is not a big market, it's, it's not a big market relative to gold, let's say, especially from a monetary standpoint. If you, I don't, I, it, it would not be within the realm of impossibility that you could see a 10 X demand that could easily bring it to a, a billion dollar to what? 10 billions, 20 billion, 30, eventually potentially a trillion dollar monetary value. Cause I think what now it's worth probably a hundred billion dollars of silver space. If I, or I, uh, think, well, I mean, or I got I that one wrong. At, I don't remember. Right. If I look at, uh, I mean, I, I did talk about that in the book. So the silver market every year, the supply of silver is a billion ounces. And if you do $22, okay. so roughly, or even say $25, you're at about $25 billion a year. Well, that's just a 10th of what the gold market is every mm -hmm. year. Exactly. And so if you think it on the, of it on that basis, it really doesn't take anywhere near as much buying to push silver up. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's, it's a lot more subject to volatility and it's and a lot of that volatility when things get going is going to be on the upside. And that's why you see things like sentiment playing into it so much. And you see silver just explode when it really starts to go. And if you think about, you know, obviously what's happening macroeconomically with uh, interest, uh, with interest rates starting to move up um, with inflation, you know, at 40 year highs. If you think of uh, what's happening on the industrial side with with solar demand, just going through the roof and governments pushing uh, everything to, you know, towards green energy. I mean, just the upside for silver is, is uh, the sky's the limit. It, it really is incredible. And I, and I talk in the book about mm -hmm. where I see silver ultimately going. Um, and I mean, you know, I get, it's funny because I get to the same number from different perspectives. And I, when, when I started to do that research, it kind of surprised me. I'm there. Oh, well, if I look at this, I get this price on silver. If I look at that, I, and from so many ways, I end up with the same target. And so for me, at least, that meant something. So it, again, you know, we talk about, you know, looking at different uh, perspectives, different arguments. Uh, for me, it meant something that if I ended up with that same number, um, maybe it has more weight, maybe it has more value, maybe it, it actually, you know, means something more. And so, yeah, I mean, I think silver's upside is, is mm -hmm. incredible. It really is. I noticed that you had um, in your book, you, you, you have a lot of metrics that you do relative to silver and gold or types of metrics to establish a price point for a potential pri uh, price of silver. So like in that, going off what you were saying, what are some of your favorite metrics that you use to get those points? Right. So, I mean, one of the first ones is if you look at... Um, the gold price and with the gold price, the gold silver ratio. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been saying uh, publicly going back to about 2009, 2010, that I think gold, gold will ultimately go to at least 5,000. Uh, and if you think of gold you know, having twice touched 
2000. That doesn't sound like such a stretch today. That's two and a half times, you know, it's recent peaks. So if gold went to 5,000 and you had a, a low in the ratio, um, so the gold-silver ratio basically for the listeners is uh, you divide um, the gold price by the silver price at any point in time. And that tells you uh, how many ounces of silver it takes to buy an ounce of gold. Right now, that ratio uh, is at about 82, I think, today. So that means it takes, at today's price, it takes 82 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. But if you, I mean, I'm not going to go back far historically because it's been all over the place. But if you go back at least, let's say, in the last couple of decades, it's averaged 50 to 55 to 60 or so. So that's been, you know, in this sort of, let's say, secular bull market that I feel started in 2001, the, you know, it's been 55 or 60. So for silver to go, uh, the gold silver ratio to go to 55 or 60 is going to mean considerable upside. That's, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't, I, not going to do the math right mm -hmm. now, but if you, right. So, it, however, if you look at our best analog is the 1970s because that's when we had a, a full, a full, uh, fully measured, uh, played out uh, silver bull market, and silver went from um, I think it was about a dollar thirty-five or so in two, in uh, 1971 to fifty dollars in 1980. That was a three thousand seven hundred percent return. And when silver peaked at $50 in 1980 versus the gold price, the, the ratio was 15 or just below 15, but let's call it 15. So if gold ultimately reaches $5,000 in this bull market and we reach a new, uh, we repeat the low in the, in the ratio of 15, meaning it would take 15 ounces of silver to buy an ounce of gold. If gold is $5,000, that means $333 silver. So that's one, that's one way that, so that's close to 300. Uh, that's how I get to um, the $300 price. Now, you know, multiple, uh, we talked about the in gold, we trust report mm -hmm. in there. Um, I think it was the 2020 report um, or 2021. Uh, they came out and the, these are, this is a very, very respectable um, outfit. Um, their prediction for gold, uh, given the kind of money printing and so on that we have, uh, their highest probability is that gold will reach $4,800 or so uh, by 2030. So as far as that's concerned, that's the $200 discrepancy. Mm -hmm. I think that, and they've even said um, that, you know, they're, they're, they could easily see, given the way things are playing out, that we could be much closer to $10,000, maybe eight to $9,000. Um, your listeners may or may not know of a guy called Jim Rickards, mm -hmm. yep. very respected, right? And so he um, doesn't necessarily predict $10,000 gold, but he said, given the money supply right now, if we were to back it the way it's mm -hmm. been backed in the past, and this is all detailed in the book, that gold would have to be $10,000 an ounce. I think that's actually a very realistic target. Uh, my 5,000 is a more conservative target. So if gold went to 10,000 and we went to twice the ratio in the gold silver ratio at 30 instead of 15, so that's more conservative on a higher number in gold, you're still at $333 silver. Mm -hmm. So that's the second way that I get there. And then another way is that if you look at um, inflation, 
Um, and yeah. if you project forward, going back to, you know, silver's high in 1970, you can also <laughs> look at the, at the price of silver to the average U.S. home price. Um, you know, when uh, we hit a peak in the silver price in 1980, that ratio, so it took 1,400, almost 1,500 ounces of silver to buy the average U.S. home. Um, today, you're at about 18,000 ounces of silver to buy the average U.S. home. If we were to go back to that long-term low, so let's say 1,500 ounces of silver, with the current price of a U.S. home at about, say, 500,000, uh, that would take, again, about uh, $300 silver to reach that uh, low in the ratio. It, it was there. It reached that peak. I mean, let's remember, these are moments in time. I'm not saying mm -hmm. silver is going to go to $300 and stay there. But if we're talking about an ultimate peak and a blow-off top, that's the kind of high that I think silver can can really very realistically reach. It makes sense because it kind of gives a, a psychological um, threshold for your right. brain to kind of, it's like, it's like you, you could be halfway to that run. It's like, is there still room to run? Is it or not? It's like, well, look at all these metrics. Metrics are still saying that we're not, the bull could still be going. So the FOMO can still be alive at that point in turn. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you know, some of silver, if you look at the charts, I mean, uh, I had written a, an article that was on Seeking Alpha going back uh, last year, and the title was Silver's the Next Bitcoin. And believe it or not, I mean, I, it, I, I was not surprised at all. I got praise and criticism from both sides. You know, everybody was saying, you know, this is crazy. This is wild. You know, uh, you, you can't compare them this, that, and the other. But I mean, if you, if you take a, uh, a detached look at both and, and what, what did it for me was I compared the charts, how the silver price behaves and how the Bitcoin price had, you know, so far behaved, you know, you get these massive run-ups. And so I'm going to say I did it purposely because I, I knew that people would, would get worked up. And my goal, though, was to get them to read about it and to understand it and get to, to see the perspective. Why, why is he saying this? Mm -hmm. Is there anything to it? And that was, that was the article that had gotten the most response ever for me. I think I had like thousands and thousands and thousands of replies to that single article, just because of probably because of the headline, frankly, <laughs> you know, the title of the article. Um, but hopefully there was, you know, enough substance to it that, um, you know, people, uh, it, it triggered something and it uh, got them going. So uh, yeah, hopefully that was um, uh, mission achieved. I think it's always like the, the clickbait stuff, but yours actually clearly had some substance to it because you actually had some, you know, uh, there's there some valid historical information that's probably in there. I'm curious to read that article now that I think about it. I haven't seen it yet, but I will definitely, yeah. it's on Seeking Alpha, you said, right? That's right. Exactly. Kind of, it's kind of like the title that uh, David Morgan said when he had him on. Remember he said, uh, we use it as a title. He said, when Bitcoin dies, silver flies. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that. Yeah, he did use that. So I'm definitely <laughs> going to take a look at that. Um, I want to talk about something that maybe doesn't get so focused on in, in, in precious metals, but it is the idea of currencies. Um, and I think because we have a macro view and an understanding as to how, you know, supply, demand, trade, and all that stuff ultimately drives the world. Um, I found it really interesting when, you know, the, the war started this year and Western countries decided to sanction Russia. And Nick and I had this conversation 
between us, between guys like yourself who are in the space, we're like, Sanchez is not going to do anything. This guy is the smartest. He's he's a chess player. He understands how the game works. He's buying gold to hedge his currency, right? So exactly. um, what's your take on the current situation with the U.S. dollar? Uh, it's ultimately not really backed by anything. At least we don't. It's probably superficial gold at this point. But where, where do you think that you know, that asset or that currency is ultimately going to get end up given this new macro environment that we're, that we're in right now. So, so that's interesting because um, in fact, I have a quote in the book. I don't remember it word for word, but it's from the U S treasury, which actually says that uh, the dollar is not backed by anything. So that that's by their own admission, right? It's, it's, it's value is for what it will buy. And, uh, and, you know, I guess the, I guess the broader view is that it, you know, it has value for uh, taxing power. You know, the, the government has taxing power and you have to pay your taxes in, in dollars, et cetera. Um, but in terms of, uh, that's definitely something that I address in the book in terms of where the dollar is going. So it's just, it's interesting that um, Ken Griffith, Ken Griffith, who uh, who runs uh, Citadel Investment, it's one of the biggest hedge funds in the, in the U.S. or in the world, even. He said that you know what uh, the states did um, with the dollar for Russia, basically weaponized the dollar, mm-hmm. and you can be sure that large holders of dollar, both sovereign and wealthy families, etc., uh, are looking like I'm talking, you know, um, families companies and, uh, and governments that, um, you know, maybe sometimes have less friendly relationships and even maybe some that have friendly relationships are going to look at their dollar holdings and say, hmm, look at what they just did with Russia's dollar holdings. Is this a wise place for me to keep my, my assets, given that, you know, that can be locked up with, you know, uh, you know a few keystrokes on a computer, it's it's crazy, and so there's no doubt that a lot of them um, have have gotten a scare from that, and are starting to look at alternatives. Um, and I do talk in the book about something called uh, MMT, which is Modern Monetary Theory, and uh, you know, a derivative some... of uh, Keynesian economics. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, as if as if Keynesian economics. We're not uh, inflationary enough. Mm-hmm. Now you've got MMT, and I mean, I don't know. We we don't really need to get into you know uh, an <laughs> academic discussion of MMT, but let's just say that it's Keynesian economics. Mm-hmm. You know, taken to a whole other level, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's like uh, it's, it's incredible, right? It's times ten. True, and, so, and in that context, money truly does grow on trees. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I need to get me one of those trees because I still have not found it. Right. And, uh, but, but I talk about MMT in the book. If, you know, if someone picks up the book, they'll get to understand what it is, how it works, where it comes from and, and where it's going. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a, essentially MMT is saying that there's no more independence between the federal reserve or a central bank and, and a government's treasury that, the central bank, if you accept MMT, you're basically saying the central bank is there to do the treasury's bidding. If the treasury says we want and we need this many new currency units, dollars or whatever, it's your job to just print them and we'll take them and we'll spend them as we see fit. 
And so, you know, their argument is that, well, if there's inflation, you know, there are tools to work with that. The government can, can raise taxes. Um, I think we all know how unpopular raising taxes is and how unlikely that is because nobody wants to be the guy doing that especially when an election is never less than four years away right and in the states uh, you have midterm elections that are two years away so even less likely i mean of course they'll do it perhaps a little bit to some extent to tax the rich and all that sort of thing that's always kind of yeah, popular right yeah tax um, the rich tax the greedy companies <laughs> exactly uh, but I think MMT, modern monetary theory, is absolutely something that's coming. It, it, it got triggered. Mm-hmm. We can, as far as I'm concerned, it may not be official policy, but it was triggered when the financial crisis hit. If you look at what happened with the Fed's balance sheet and central bank balance sheets around the world. I mean, I remember I was working in mutual funds at the time and I was at a conference and it was in the thick of it. And one of the speakers who was a big fund manager said, and this is sort of all sort of anecdotal stuff, but he was saying, you know, I'm hearing uh, companies telling me that there are cargo ships that are sitting, floating around in the ocean, nowhere to go. They're not, they're not docking. They're not unloading their goods because the seller of those goods does n- no longer trusts the, um, um, letter uh forget what you call it there's there's a, a letter that you get from your bank that is essentially a promise for payment mm, so yeah. they were they no longer were were trusting the banking system at that point so they were telling the shipping companies don't deliver the goods do not unload the goods so everything froze up so of course you know the helicopter <laughs> kicked in started dumping money and you know provided liquidity and that, and as if you know, the the response wasn't bad enough. And if you look at uh, what it was after the financial crisis, if you look at what happened uh, after, during, and after the pandemic, it was just another order of magnitude up from there again. If you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it was about a trillion dollars, if I remember right. And this is all in the book. If you look at the charts, it was about a trillion dollars before the financial crisis. Um, it doubled almost overnight. And then it went within about, I'm going to say four or five years to $4 trillion. It for maybe half a year or a year started to trail off a bit. We were at $4 trillion. Within a year and a half, when the, finance, when the pandemic hit, we went from $4 trillion within a year and a half to $9 trillion in the Fed's which, balance sheet. Which is crazy because it literally is, they printed 40% of the money supply in a span of like a year and a half. Exactly. Exactly. There was, a, there was a beautiful graph that Harry Dent had put. I was watching one of his things and it was basically talking about the QE and showing a comparison of QE performance uh, at the beginning, the first 10 months of the COVID pandemic relative to the three years of the financial crash. And we had done, well, the US had done 3.6 trillion in 10 months, whereas they had done about the same amount in over three years. Exactly. You know, so exactly. I, just to show how much more aggressive they have to be just to stay, just to keep things just barely afloat. Exactly. And I mean, research has absolutely proven to us that, you know, when you get to these kinds of debt levels, every new dollar that you print, the incremental effect in terms of stimulating the economy goes down dramatically. It used to be that a dollar had maybe more than a dollar effect in terms of boosting um but now we're at, at the point where it's way less than it's maybe 10 percent 
um, of a dollar. You know, a dollar maybe has 10 cents in terms of boosting effect. So uh, you have to print that much more in terms of trying to get the stimulus going. So, I mean, that, that to me, you know, um, an unofficial policy of modern monetary theory to me shows me that, uh, you know, crazy printing like this just means the more dollars in circulation means more dollars chasing the same goods and services. That means every dollar, every new dollar out there makes every other dollar that much worth less. Mm -hmm. And so um, you have huge inflation, you have much less buying power. And so ultimately the dollar is going to lose a lot of its, uh, a lot of its strength. Is it going to zero is it going to be replaced. You know, that might be something for decades from now at the very least, it's going to lose a lot of its influence, I think, on the world stage. And so, um, you know, gold and silver are priced in, in dollars. So, you know, <laughs> if nothing else on that basis, because of, of dollar printing, um, gold and silver prices have to go up. So what are yeah. some of your favorite, um, like, uh, investment vehicles to have exposure to silver? So... For silver, if you're looking at wanting to, besides physical silver, because I think it's wise to at least own a little bit of physical silver, I want to say that off the bat. Couple um, bars, right? Have yeah, like four or five there, bars. Honestly, you can't go wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Um, you know, and I say in the book, if someone someone's never bought or held a, a silver coin, a one ounce silver coin. You know, it's it's gonna run you thirty five dollars or something. Go ahead, just order a coin and and have that and feel it. It's 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 got a beautiful weight to it. It's 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 a work of art. Um, it's it's a it's a really nicely uh, produced and refined item. And you're holding something that will never lose its value. It's proven its its worth for thousands of years. And, you know, I gave actually in, in the, um, that recent conference in May, the metals investor forum, I gave a, an interesting a comparison. I did, the, I did the math and I look back um, at, so look over a hundred years. So 1922, um, an ounce of silver cost 68 cents. And if you use the US's own CPI inflation calculator, um, 68 cents in 1922 is worth a little north of 1150 today. So that would mean that if 68 cents was is today worth, you know, you need to have $11.50 to buy what you used to have to have 68 cents for. That means that if if silver was 68 cents back then and is $22 today, that means it's more than doubled inflation. Because inflation calculated uh, over the past century brings 68 cents to 11.50. We're at $22 in silver. So silver has doubled inflation over a century. So that's good enough for me. I mean, in terms of you know preserving your purchasing power, that does it absolutely for me. So you know, and you can it's accessible because quantities are small and. Um, and uh, you know it's uh, it's it's um, it's compared to gold. A, a single ounce of silver is, uh, is is like I say, thirty bucks, thirty five bucks. Uh, why not just buy a few? Get yourself um, used to uh, owning some real money. And it, it, after that, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say after that, uh, you know, actually, this is something I tell that I tell subscribers is that 
it's true that premiums are really high. Uh, will they come down? I hope so in some ways because I, I want people to own more silver. Um, but right now they're still very high and that makes owning physical silver more expensive than it has been historically. So it still makes sense to buy a little bit and own a little bit. But my workaround in the in the meantime, and, and I want to, you know, my disclaimer right away is that it's not the equivalent to owning physical silver. But if you want exposure to the silver price, buy my, at least my favorite, and it's not advice, it's just my favorite, um, is the PSLV silver mm -hmm. ETF, which is run by Sprott. I've, I've looked at it, I've researched, I've analyzed it and compared it to other silver ETFs. And my confidence level with that product versus the others is, is there's just no comparison. You know, the silver is held by the Royal Canadian Mint. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been run, it's run by Sprott that has a tremendous reputation um, in this industry. And so that's absolutely the way to go. People can, you know, let's say someone says, all right, I, I want to invest 500 or a thousand dollars in silver. I don't want to pay those premiums. So I say, go ahead and buy the Sprott Silver ETF. You can, depending on what happens, you can actually, there's ways to do, you can do a little bit of research, uh, but sometimes the, the, uh, the unit value of that ETF trades slightly above or slightly below its net asset value. So that means that if it's trading below the net asset value, that means you're actually buying silver at a discount to the spot price of silver, which is very interesting. And usually you get that when silver is, you know, in for in the near term, at least out of favor, just people are not that interested. It, it has more liquidity on being on the open market like that. Exactly. And so you can buy whatever dollar amount you want to allocate to, to, let's say, you know, physical silver. And then when ultimately at some point in the future, when, if, premiums come down, then you can sell all or some of those holdings and switch them over into physical silver. And so, but in the meantime, at least you're exposed to whatever happens in the silver price. So if there's upside, you get to benefit. So that's my workaround in terms of, you know, dealing with higher premiums in, in, uh, in physical silver. Well, a Andy Schachman talks about it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He runs Miles Franklin out yeah. in Minneapolis, but he always said, he goes, everybody at our age or anyone really should really just start buying at the end of the month, you know, put like $400, $700, just buy silver with that. Just stack that, you know, and put whatever it is that you allocate. And I started doing that too. Um, and I've realized I got like a little, you know, silver collection that I probably need to get a safe soon. Uh, hopefully nobody's listening. That's going to find my place and, and come and break in. But, um, no, it's, it's, it's really fascinating because I've always been and a Nick, Nick as well. I mean, that's, that's why we got along. And I think you are this way too, but like, I've always been that type of person, wherever the herd is going, I always go the opposite way because I know that there's something there that you could benefit from. Right. And Rick rule talked about it. You've got to buy things when they're not loved right now. There's like a love hate relationship I find with, 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 with silver, uh, and gold too, right? I'm seeing ads with Robert Kiyosaki on Fox News or Fox Business saying, buy silver, buy silver. And they've been running since the Fed lowered interest rates to zero, right? Wow. So um, the thing that did it for me, Peter, was like when Jerome Powell came out, I remember I was standing right here. I was watching, you know, the world was collapsing. We all thought we were going to, you know, implode. And they're like, yeah, the Fed is cutting rates to zero. And then the Monday after the market crashed, I was just, I called Nick. I'm like, we're going to have the biggest hyperinflation environment 
Agreed. in the history of our lifetime right now. So it, it, it's really fascinating. Um, yep. One other area I think that you've done some work on as well is just understanding like streaming or royalty businesses, right? So like, what do you think is more advantageous for somebody who's just starting off? Is it better to get into the physical or do you see there being also an opportunity in like streaming and like royalty, silver, or even gold royalty companies for that matter? Sure. So, um, you know, if you're going to dip your toe into uh, the equities, so those so the stocks basically, uh, in the silver space, that is absolutely the way I would suggest someone going. And you can, there are, so let's start with the bottom. And I talk about all of this in the book in terms of, you know, working your way up from the lowest to the highest risk. The lowest risk is physical silver. From there, you have silver ETFs that just basically are backed by silver, own, that actually own silver. From there, your next level up is silver miner ETFs. So that's like buying a mutual fund or it's a one click way to buy like one stock that actually owns a bunch of uh, silver mining companies. Like the SIL. Exactly. S-I-L, that ETF is, is, is exactly that. And then you have one that's called S, that's S-I-L-J and that's the silver junior ETFs. But in reality, it's actually more like mid tiers and even some larger silver companies. So it's a bit of misnomer, but at least still it's a slightly higher risk and more exposure to slightly, you know, higher potential silver companies. After the silver miner ETFs, from there, the next sort of, um, you know, uh, rung on the risk level is in my view, uh, silver, um, silver royalty companies. There are very few. Um, and so, but that's absolutely the way to go because royalty companies don't mine silver. What they do is, they look for projects that mining companies have, uh, they raise money, and then they buy a royalty or a stream on that on a, on a given project. And what it does is it entitles them to, uh, to earn on all of the silver that's produced over the next, could be 10 years, 20 years, often it's the life of the mine. Sometimes the mine will get shut down for a matter of a few years or, or several years, someone else will buy it, take it over, start it up again. And when that happens, that royalty is still in place and the company that owns the royalty starts to see the royalties kick in again because it doesn't matter who owns, who's operating the mine, they still own the royalty on that mine. Um, so that's really low risk because they don't have to worry about looking for silver they don't have to permit the mines they don't have to finance the mines they don't have to run the mines they just basically say here's a bunch of money uh, when you produce i will receive a stream is actually receiving a claim on the silver produced and they can take delivery of that silver and resell it they buy it at a big discount maybe four dollars an ounce five dollars an ounce versus today's $22 an ounce. So that's the deal that they get for providing um, maybe hundreds, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in advance. Um, and if it's a royalty, it's, it's, they're paid in dollars for the amount of silver produced um, from a given mine. So that's, as I say, that's the lowest risk. From there you have the next level of risk and it's still relatively low risk is the large producers. And there you have people uh, running companies like Pan American Silver, mm -hmm. Ross Beatty, who wrote the foreword to the book. And so there's a handful of large silver producers. There aren't that many. Um, but uh, 
that's again a relatively low risk way of uh, of achieving exposure to the silver space. From there, you have mid-tier companies that either are producing, have smaller mines, and or could be developing. You have developing companies that aren't yet producing, but are uh, developing their mines. And then you have the highest risk is junior explorers, companies that may have a deposit. Uh, that's the next level of risk. And then others that don't have a deposit are looking for uh, for silver and don't yet have any. That's the absolute higher, highest risk. But, um, you know, with risk comes reward. Uh, not always, of course. But, um, you know, some of these stocks can and will return 50 times, 100 times. It's just and, and beyond that, it's just incredible the kinds of um, the kinds of earnings that uh, that will happen in a uh, in a silver stock. And again, to be fair, this is something that Rick has said multiple times, and I've talked about with him as well, is that people don't have to go for that sort of, you know, highest risk to get some good returns because Pan American Silver returned, I believe it was something like 1500%. So 15 times your money in the span of about five years in the, in the, in the 2000s. So, uh, Wheat and precious metals did something similar. I think it was 17 times return in a span of eight years. Uh, no, sorry, in a span of three years from about 2005 to 2008. So these are some of the biggest silver, public silver companies you can invest in. And they can produce in a silver bull market, they can do, produce those kinds of returns. So again, you know, um, risk reward uh, at the very least, gaining exposure to these kinds of companies makes a lot of sense because of the you know relatively low risk but really high potential returns i'm curious to know a little bit more of your engagement between uh on this subject between you and your kids because obviously you know it's it, because you know you have the things like peter ship when you have him and his son that battle it out over different asset classes so i'm curious to see like what's the dynamic between you and your kids in terms of the subject so I mean, you know, they, they, they let me manage their stuff, which mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to do. Um, and so it's interesting because, uh, you know, you see the progress over time. You see, you know, from, let's say, mid-teens to early 20s, they, you see the progress in terms of uh, me talking about the whole space, talking about silver, talking about gold, talking about when this, uh, this whole Wall Street silver uh, event hit and, and, and talking about the reactions and, and them living through the pandemic and seeing what happened to the prices of gold and silver through that time, um, you know, seeing what happened to the economy and to inflation and to money printing and all of that. And um, I mean, you know, their, their ultimate interests are in other areas and that's fine. Uh, you know, I, uh, I went with what was, you know, in, in my heart, so to speak. And for me, that's uh, researching, writing and investing in, in, in resources, commodities, and, and in particular in precious metals. Um, and so that's great. But I think that I, I'm happy to see that they're open-minded enough to look at, to understand, to see where things are going. Um, to realize that, uh, you know, this has a place in their portfolios. Um, ultimately, you know, um, they want to be able to retire comfortably like everybody else. Uh, they, they see what's happening in the stock market. They hear the news. They see headlines. 
Um, and they see that, you know, it's not an either or kind of thing. You know, you don't have to just invest in silver, just invest in gold, just invest in commodities. Uh, there are alternatives that are interesting too. You have some, in my view at least, some limited interesting things going on in cryptocurrencies. Um, there is potential everywhere. What I do think uh, they're, they're noticing, and I think probably the bottom line to it, is that they're seeing that it's alternatives today that are the place to be. Um, really, stocks and bonds, uh, they're seeing it, uh, are at, at very, very likely at the end of, of, of what's a historical 40-year bull market. I mean, that's unheard of in history as well, right? Mm -hmm. To have uh, that long for stocks and bonds, in fact. And if you look at what happened, it's, it's interesting too that this was part of my, my talk back in May. Um, in January and in, uh, and in April of this year, you had net outflows in the US in both stocks and bonds. Normally, one's supposed to zig when the other zags. Exactly. I see you, Dan, going like that. <laughs> You're exactly right. That's why people own stocks and bonds, right? That's what's supposed to happen. The problem is they've both been going up like crazy for 40 years, since about 1980 or 1982, until currently, or recently, let's say December, January. Since then, they've both been down. Stocks are down about 16%. Bonds were down 20%. Think about that. People are buying bonds for security. They're supposed to be, you know, kind of the antithesis to volatility, right? They're supposed to be safe investments. You're supposed to buy bonds and say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to get, even if it's these days, a low rate of interest, but it's going to be there. They don't understand well enough how bonds work. They just think I'll buy bonds because they're supposed to be safe. And then they buy, then they get their investment statement and they see that in the first quarter, your bond funds are down 15 or 20%. And they're thinking, this is crazy. <laughs> what just happened? My stocks and my bonds are down. So it, it, it's it's funny that you bring that up because I've got, you know, I've got my own portfolios that I, you know, I trade, I invest my own money. And I was looking at my returns versus one of my accounts, which is a wealth simple account, which I just said, okay, invest on autopilot. You know, throw thousand five hundred bucks a month in there, whatever. I was, I didn't look at it until this morning, and I looked at it and I was like, "Why are they holding all these bond funds?" And I'm like, "I can beat the market." So what I did is I literally transferred out my RSP. I'm like, "I'm moving it to my account. Let me manage it myself." So I think that's kind of just the the transition yeah. that many people are going to have to eventually wake up to in the next Great. decade, really, because silver yeah. and these precious metals are like. This is going to be the hedge. I think crypto has its place. Don't get me wrong, but most of them will eventually go to zero. Uh, it's just the way the market is. Yep. Um, but you know, it's just such a fascinating point. Like it, I think this year too, Peter bonds probably had the worst outflow in like two decades, That's right? right? Which is which is insane. Um, I want to ask you one last question. I mean, the most important thing for you uh, is. And I think for us too, in this crazy world is just keeping our sanity sometimes from the stuff that we're seeing. What do you, what do you do uh, in your free time to kind of just, you know, silver, you, you focus on that, you focus on investing, but what do you kind of do to just like take your mind off things a little bit, just to recharge and refocus? Yeah. I mean, uh, 
you know, uh, I, when I can, I like to travel. That's certainly a fun thing. I think that, uh, you know, you gain, I've, I've been fortunate over, you know, the last sort of couple of decades with the family traveling, especially to uh, Europe, for example, a few times and uh, had some long trips. My work allowed me to be able to do work while I was traveling. And so uh, that was tremendous because we would, you know, take these 30 day stretches overseas that, uh, you know, uh, today being, able, uh, you know, a bit of a, what they call um, digital nomad means that you, if you've got an internet connection and a laptop, you can work anywhere. So that's been fantastic. I think, you know, travel is a big thing and uh, I could see where that's going to really bounce back um, pretty strongly. Um, besides that, you know, I think things like hanging out with family, you know, just appreciating that. That's something that uh, when I connected with uh, David Morgan, uh, the the very first time, you know, he said, you know, I, I appreciate more than ever uh, time with family. And, and that was a, a, almost a year into the pandemic and, you know, how we were so, uh, I guess, restricted and, and cut off and, and, and careful um, made sense. I think, yeah, those are probably the two main ways really is just focusing on family, spending time with family and, uh, and taking advantage of, of, uh, of seeing things. You know, I think, Travel is, is, is an important one. I th it just gives you so many perspectives. We're, we're so often led to think um, that places around the world that, that sound uh, foreign, that, you know, that's, will, will automatically be dangerous. And yet, sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> no worries. Um, and uh, it's so wrong. It really is. I mean, some, you know, if you can't travel, you can, you can watch uh, things on, on, on television or on the internet that are people that will go and do these, uh, you know, uh, trips to Asia, for example, or to uh, the Middle East, and they'll, and they'll go to places that are just so exotic. I'll give you an example. I was watching one, um, one episode of uh, this woman, who, a British woman who was traveling in the Middle East and uh, through companies of the stand, uh, sorry, countries like the stands, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Turkey, and so on, uh, Georgia, you name it, and Armenia. And I think it was Azerbaijan. If you look, I don't remember the name of it, but if you looked at the capital of Azerbaijan, it Baku. was... Right. It was incredible how... Yep developed and modern this place is i mean you know five-star hotels glass buildings uh you know these um stadiums you know state-of-the-art stadiums uh, brand new highways i mean we're not we're not talking about dubai here we're talking about azerbaijan and interesting note um what built that economy is commodities <laughs> so that may be an interesting takeaway as we, you know, perhaps uh, look towards ending, uh, wrapping up this call is commodities. That's absolutely something that uh, people need to, to look at. Um, you know, if we're, and I believe we are ending uh, a 40 year bull run in stocks and bonds, alternatives, commodities are absolutely the place, things that our economy runs on is built on, you know, we're surrounded by, uh, smartphones, tablets, laptops, computers, uh, headphones, you name it, medical devices, everything around you, uh, alarm systems, cameras, microphones, a lot of these things have, have silver in them because made of, they're made of things, they're made of copper, they're made of um, 
uh, aluminum, uh, but silver is crucial to them, especially in the electronics uh, for switches, for connections, for connectivity, for ref its reflectivity, uh, conductivity. It's just, uh, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely something to, uh, to, to, uh, to keep in mind. You brought up Azerbaijan. I mean, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but the Formula One is there. And I think that also kind of, that's another sport. I mean, they, they've got all kinds of electrical wiring and, and, and you know, metals Absolutely. in there. Carbon fiber comes from some part of silver, right? That's so, right. Uh, it's so fascinating. Peter, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for giving us a copy of this book here. I can't wait to, th this This feels like it's going to be a crash course on it's everything. It's like, yeah, exactly. A good detailed crash course of everything you need to know about silver. Which, which, oh, which is, uh, which is unreal. Where can the, uh, where can the listeners find you uh, on social media or any, any other platforms? Right. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's at uh, Peter underscore Kraut. And so my website is silverstockinvestor.com. The book is uh, on Amazon, either anywhere on Amazon. It's it's available through uh, all the Western European countries, Australia, etc. I've been very happy. The, the response has been fantastic, and the sales are great. Um, all people need to do is go to Amazon and type in the Great Silver Bowl. It'll come up right away. And in its first month, it's been number one in terms of new releases in its category. So I'm really happy. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, it's been in the top five in terms of in its category, um, which is um, commodities, metals, and investing. Uh, in Canada, it's been in the top five. In the States, it's been in, in the top five, at least in the first few weeks. In Canada, for most of the first month, it's been uh, in the top five as well. Uh, paperback, Kindle, back and forth. So they can people can buy paperback or Kindle. Um, but yeah, the response has been tremendous and it's interesting, you know, what you were saying about, you know, being a, a good read and, and a, an overview on silver, because that's, I'm happy to say, cause that was my goal. I've tried to make it a readable book, not something that was too academic that I figured would turn too many people off, but I wanted to put enough meat in it that, you know, people who understood the space a little bit felt like they needed, um, you know, an overview would get enough detailed info on silver and how to approach investing in silver. Uh, but the feedback's been fantastic. People have said, you know, you put everything I ever wanted to know about silver and the history and the background of silver and how to, what the potential is and how to take advantage of it in just this one place. And so, you know, they've said, I feel like I found what I've been looking for, <laughs> you know, for, for, for years and decades even. And so that's just music to my ears that that was my intention all along. I'm sure That's, you nailed it on the dot. That's all. Yeah. I got really looking forward to reading the book and, you know, nerding out to, to precious metals with Peter. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Um, we can't wait to have a book review. We'll have to grab a, you know, a quick pint and talk about it more detail next time. But uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on here uh, and sharing your wisdom and sharing your journey with, with our listeners. I think you're, you know, yeah. I'm, we're biased here, but you know, everything is lining up for this to be a very interesting decade in precious metals and in silver as well. Well, guys, the pleasure has been mine. You made this uh, a really easy, easy interview because all I had to do was say, you know, what I thought. And uh, honestly, this has been uh, it's been a tremendous time and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I really look forward to, to coming back soon. Of course. Awesome. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the New Jed Mindset Podcast. Ciao, guys. <laughs>